Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we hear the full speaker series talk with Nicole Hannah-Jones, an investigative reporter with the New York Times Magazine, formerly with ProPublica, and recent contributor to This American Life. Over the next hour, Nicole shares some of her experiences reporting on issues such as segregation in housing and education, her thoughts on the importance of diversity in the newsroom, and how the media covers race in America. I'm Tom Patterson. I'm the acting director of the uh, of the Shorenstein Center. Our guest today is uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, award-winning investigative reporting. Uh, we were talking in my office, trips Raleigh, Oregon, uh, ProPublica, uh, and now uh, a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. Um, and uh, she was... Uh, 2015 Journalist of the Year by named by the National Association of Black Journalists. Uh, Nicole, welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you all for spending some of your time with me today. Uh, I'm going to keep my remarks fairly brief. I understand the best part of this is the Q&A, and I prefer it too. Um, but uh, the title of this talk today is Investigating Racial Injustice. And uh, just that title alone, uh, it speaks to somewhat of the novelty of such a beat. Um, when I came to ProPublica three years ago, that's what I decided I was going to cover. And at that time, my boss and I used to joke that I was probably the only uh, remaining civil rights reporter in the country. And that typically, um, for the last decade or so, um, many newsrooms had been getting rid of race beats. They no longer felt that these beats were relevant or necessary, um, in some ways saying that all reporters should be writing about race, which is of course true, but we also know in many cases when something is everyone's job and is a big no one's job, and particularly when it comes to race, um, weren't seeing a lot of good reporting. Um, so I decided that that was what I was going to do, but also to make this an investigative beat was, was it was probably probably remains the only investigative beat strictly around racial injustice. Um, and I think that is because the way that we've tended to view this reporting uh, kind of falls in two camps, is uh, racist of the week reporting, where someone says something that we think is racist or does something that we think is racist, and it usually has to be very explicit, you know, call someone an N-word or something like that, and we chase that story down. Um, or it's kind of this... Uh, magical kind of disparity porn, which are stories that are always talking about their racial disparities exist. This new study came out that says there's this inequality or an event kind of explodes like Ferguson, and suddenly we cover it. Um, but we cover these things as if kind of uh, the disparities and inequalities magically float down from the sky, and no one's responsible for them. And to the extent that anyone is responsible for them, it's, it's bad people in the past and no one now. Um, but I don't believe that to be true. I, um, I think that what I've spent the last three years doing is really trying to show the way that racial inequality is actually um, explicitly and intentionally maintained through social policy and um, the actions of people both politically and uh, privately. Um, and so what that means is instead of writing a, a story that says housing is segregated, you go to a community and you show how it got to be segregated, which is these officials voted to do this thing, or the federal government decided it would not enforce the Fair Housing Act. Um, same thing with school segregation, or wh whatever it is that, that you do. So that's kind of the way that I've done my work over the last three years, and I've really tried to show that this reporting, when done right, is just as substantial reporting as any other investigative reporting, as reporting on politics or political spending or on the environment. But we rarely have seen people take the beat in that way. And I think a large part of it is, is our discomfort with race and our feeling that we can't call out anything um, as racial or racist unless we have a smoking gun of someone saying something explicitly racist, which of course we know doesn't work that way anymore. But for instance, um, when I was writing about school resegregation in Tuscaloosa, I didn't have to show that school board members hated black kids. What I, all I had to show was 
they created a school, a feeder line of schools that intentionally were 100% black, and then they deprived those schools of the same resources. Really, the, the intention was irrelevant. The action <coughs> that they took, as well as being able to show that they knew the results, the results of their actions were predictable. That was all that I needed to do. And I think so often um, we apply standards to this type of reporting that we don't necessarily apply apply to other reporting. Um, kind of my standard line now is if, if Exxon Mobil has a leak in the Gulf, we don't care whether the CEO of Exxon Mobil hates ducks. Really is irrelevant. <laughs> you know, we don't care. What we care is, did they, could they have prevented it? Did they do things or not do things that led to this? And do they know that by doing those things or not doing those things that we are going to have a problem? That's you know, all that we care about in reporting those stories. If we can find that email that says, he hates ducks, that's great. But it doesn't stop us from doing the reporting. And so that's the way that I kind of do my job, is understanding that, one, a lot of good people, well-meaning people, do really messed up things. And that when it comes to racial discrimination and segregation, a lot of well-meaning people will allow a lot of really bad things to happen to other kids. And it doesn't really matter if they're good people or not. It just matters the harm. Um, so we have seen, just to quickly wrap this up, uh, over the last year, of course, we've had Ferguson, we've had Baltimore, and so you've seen a resurgence of um, newsrooms that are now saying we want people specifically to be reporting and writing about race. So that's, of course, a good thing. Um, can be a good thing. The more people who are looking specifically at this and understanding that this, this is like the central kind of thorn in the side of our democracy. It is not, race is not something that we should only write about once in a while or when a community explodes. And our lack of doing that means our coverage is actually very shallow and we're actually not really able to understand why things happen like they happen. So I was thinking, and typically, I stay away from breaking news. I didn't go down to Ferguson. I didn't go to Baltimore. I try to take a bigger step back and look to see what's, what's the larger story there, what can be investigated as opposed to just writing, this is happening right now. And you looked at what was happening with the coverage in Baltimore. And the one thing, because I had spent so much time in fair housing that I found to be so interesting, was in all of this talk about Baltimore segregated and all of the issues with policing, Baltimore had just recently settled a fair housing lawsuit with the federal government, where the federal government had been accused of intentionally segregating housing uh, in, in kind of cahoots with Baltimore County, which did not want affordable housing because Baltimore County did not want poor black and brown people. That was such a huge backdrop to what happened in Baltimore, but no one knew about it, no one reported about it, because we don't really do deep reporting on race the way that we do on other sub subjects. Um, so that's probably why I was chosen to talk to you guys today, because I take that approach. I'm, I have a lot of luxury because I could spend a lot of time. I can spend months and months on something where a lot of reporters can't. But I also say, just because you went to school doesn't mean you're an expert on covering schools. And just because you belong to a race, whether that race be white or black or Asian, doesn't mean that you're an expert on covering race. And we need to treat um, this beat in the same way that we treat other beats, where you really need to have expertise to be able to do it well. And with that, I'll probably end my remarks. Oh. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Good, 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so race is coming back as a beat in the newsroom. The, um, <clears throat> but the one thing that the studies do show is that uh, there hasn't been much change in the diversity of the newsroom. That's right. right. So there was a real push in the 80s, the early 90s, to make newsrooms more diverse. Um, and then it's kind of flattened off since then, right? Uh, how much of a problem do you think that is in terms of really getting uh, the kind of coverage of race that, uh, that you'd like to see? I think it's a huge problem. I think it's a problem that, again, well-meaning people are doing a very poor job of grappling with. Um, Right, right now, particularly in newspapers, about 13% of people who work in newspapers are not white in a country that obviously is about, I think it's about 40% non-white. Um, so that's a huge problem. It's a huge problem for a couple of reasons. One, um, we are, as an industry, love to point out when other industries are not diverse. 
We do not so much like to reflect internally about our lack of diversity and why that matters. And so for other people, we can say that's a problem. But for us, we say, well, anybody should be able to write about these issues and we're doing the best we, ca we can. But we're not doing the best we can. And a big part of what you miss out on when you don't have diversity in newsrooms, you miss out on access to communities. Who's going to talk to reporters? Who can get into, you know, when you're in Ferguson and everything's going to hell, who gets noticed in those communities? Is it a white reporter or a black reporter? A black reporter can slip in and out of those communities in a way that a white reporter can't. Um, and another big thing is just the stories that get written and don't get written. I think we like to pretend that we are not biased, but of course all of us are biased in what we see as a story, how we tell those stories. I think about that um, report that came out of Ferguson about how the Ferguson um, City Council is basically using police to raise revenue on the backs of poor black people. To think that that, had, that reporting had to come out of the Justice Department and a small civil rights group as opposed to from the newspapers and the other media down there is very telling. Was, is this something that's believable? And if you're a black reporter, the fact that police are abusing citizens is very believable because you have seen it yourself. When you're a white reporter, it may or may not be a credible story because that's not been your experience. And so I think that diversity really um, challenges your ability to cover your entire communities, to cover them well. Um, when you see things that get in the media and you're like, that's very offensive, I don't understand how that got through. It usually got through because there was no person of color who was weighing in on whether this was uh, uh, appropriate to write or to run. So questions again, if you could identify yourself and students first. Yeah, please. <clears throat> uh, my name is Spencer Sherman, I'm an MVP one at the HBS school. I don't know what that means. First year student. Okay. First year student. And I really, really love the story you wrote uh, for this American or, or did for this American life. Um, I'm a teacher in New Orleans for the past six years, where the school system is about 95 percent black, mm -hmm. whereas the city is about 60-ish percent black. I was wondering what you thought was like a sustainable way to actually solve this problem. And I, I know the story I talked about, you know, the Harvard with the Hartford model. Yeah. Which seems to me like not probably very scalable. Do you see, as, and it's a you know, problem across all the country, do you see a way forward that solves this at a sort of a national level rather than sort of one-off little, you know, bang school solutions? No. <laughs> 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 um, I, I don't, I mean, there's, the only way to really solve it is wide-scale enforcement of the Fair Housing Act. Um, you have to integrate neighborhoods to integrate schools. But even in integrated neighborhoods, it doesn't necessarily integrate the schools. So because we're like uh, recording this, I won't give you my real answer. But um, <laughs> I think that what we have not been able, if you just if you look at the data and you look at the history, what we have not been able to get around is there are not a lot of white Americans who are willing to put their kids in schools with large numbers of black kids. It's just the fact. And um, we may like to believe differently, but it's just the facts. So I don't know how we get around it. You can find small pockets, but even the Hartford example, which is held up as a model, um, the only way that works is to build ridiculously fabulous schools, schools with planetariums and just like crazy things for public schools to entice white parents to leave their perfectly good schools in their own community to come in. And they're not doing it for diversity. They don't even think about it. Um, and what's left then is half of the black kids in Hartford don't get anything. They don't get integration and they don't get those great schools. Um, and that's our model. So if your model is half of the kids in that community don't get anything, don't get integration or great schools, and the only way to get white people in those schools is to trick them into a diversity program by providing amazing things when at any time when they're tired of it, they can just go back to their perfectly fine public schools. I don't know how we solve it. We haven't really found any place that has solved it. But with that said, um, <laughs> I write about it because I don't think it's okay. I don't think it's okay for us to say this is hard, we haven't done it, so let's just not try. Because as you know from that This American Life piece and my other reporting, we're harming a lot of kids. We are, we are truthfully um, taking any hope for equality or justice and a, a, a good life away from millions of kids who are trapped in these um, segregated failing schools. So 
we have to keep trying, but um, you're going to have to change the whole way that, that much of this country thinks to make it work. I'm Please. never like the hopeful yeah. person, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so here. Please. Um, so I have this perception that in the media, when race is involved, the coverage is predominantly focused on you know, black Americans. Yes. Um, and then when other races are covered, like that atrocious Nicholas Kristoff <laughs> article on Native Americans on Sunday, the New York Times, um, just have stuff like that. Do you think there's a way to sort of expand the range of racial coverage in media and, you know, expand interest in it? So, yes. I think there's a way to expand it. One, the way to expand it is you need to diversify the newsrooms. But that alone will not expand it. I mean, we do tend to write about race in a very binary way. With that said, there's, there's a reason to that, too. I mean, if you look at statistics, um, everyone else is falling in between that white and black in terms of quality of schools, likelihood to be in segregated or integrated communities, um, graduation rates, ability to get into colleges. Everyone is falling in between that black and white binary, which is kind of the original racial binary. But that doesn't excuse why we exclude other people or can only see certain groups in opposition to blackness, which is basically what the, the Nicholas Kristoff column was. Is Asians are a minority, but they're able to do this. Um, so I think that, I think particularly Asian Americans feel left out because we do at least write about Latinos, though only in terms of immigration, which is also problematic. Uh, Black people get written about, though, also tends to be in a very kind of restricted way. And then Asian Americans and Native Americans pretty much are invisible um, in most of the cases. And I think it's because the media doesn't um, know how to tell those stories, doesn't think a lot about those stories, tends to only write about race in terms of flare-ups or when things are very stark. Um, and I, I think we only get better at that if, if there is a push. So you look at, I think about, like, the way that social media has democratized media, mainstream media. I look at when Trayvon Martin was killed and mainstream media was pretty much ignoring that story and social media pushed mainstream media to tell that story. Same thing with the Ferguson reporting. The mainstream reporting of Ferguson started out pretty bad, uh, but then people on the ground who were like countering the narrative forced mainstream media to tell a different story. And I think that if there is a way that the, the institution is not going to change from inside. It's only going to change from the outside. Yeah, please. <laughs> hi. Hi, hi. Uh, my name is Angela. I just came, uh, come from China, and this is my first time to be here. And uh, my question is that I work in Chengdu. I have my own training school. And um, uh, back in China, we, we have this kind of topic, not only the racial discrimination, but also the uh, sex di discrimination mm -hmm. and the age discrimination. And my problem is that uh, in my training center, we all uh, hire you know, foreign teachers at, at my school. And, but the problem is that the, the parents or the students sometimes, they prefer to have the, the white people as their mm. you know, foreign teachers. So this, um, you know, when I face this kind of problem, I struggle a lot because I believe in justice. Uh, you know, I believe in everybody in this world is so equal. And also, you know, the, in some of the government schools in China, and they also, you could know, think could that... Could you get to the question? So, yeah. 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 So yeah. I just don't know how to solve this kind of problems. They don't want to hire, you know, black foreign uh, teachers, and they give their lower, you know, wages. So what can I do? So I just want to get an answer from you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just to be clear, I'm just a journalist. I can't actually... Um, I, I'm not an activist. I don't, I don't solve problems. All that I... My role would be to write a story about something and hope that by making people aware that people will decide to do something about it. Um, so that's all that I can say is you have to, sometimes people allow things to happen because they don't know. Sometimes they know and they still allow them to happen. So I don't know how it can change, but I know in my role being silent, we know that being silent, nothing changes. Thank you. So let's do one more student question, then we'll open it up, please. Yeah. Hi, I'm Sean Moran, student, um, and I'm interested in what you said about access. Certain black reporters would have access to different kind of stories in Ferguson than white reporters would. 
But then you also said that you don't have to be black to write about race, which I think is one of the problems that we see in mainstream media and big publications, thinking about Ta-Nehisi Coates or yourself, like you are the people who then everybody else looks to as the voice of the minority. Um, so how do you how do you navigate that problem of access, but also the right. identity of the reporter? I mean, the thing is, all, race in America is complex. It's always a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You want integration, but at the same time, what is lost when when black kids come into all white schools, right? Like all of this is complex. So I think access. Um, you can't believe that that integrating or diversifying newsrooms is just superficial. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. The only thing that matters is my skin might be a different color, um, and that's all the diversity. If the diversity, if we don't believe that diversity actually means I bring something different, then what's the point? So I do think that I bring something different. I bring, you know, coming from Mississippi sharecroppers. I bring growing up very working class, being on free and reduced lunch myself, being bust myself um, to integrate schools. All of that, being a woman, being a black woman, like all of that, of course, are things that I'm bringing in the newsroom. And that's important because I see stories that other people don't see, period. I tell stories that other people are not telling. And someone who's coming from a different background, a native reporter who grew up on a reservation or grew up in an urban um, Indian community in Portland, is absolutely seeing stories that I don't see and is telling those stories. Um, but also is getting a different level of access because a lot of people in communities of color don't trust mainstream media. They are not going to be honest and candid with a white reporter. It's just, it's just a fact. In the same way that some white officials will not speak to me the same way that they'll speak to a white male reporter. So I think that's why you need a newsroom that has all of these different types of people who are going to get different access and different stories. With that, with that said, um, some people consider it a burden. I don't. I got into reporting because I wanted to tell these stories. So per, for me personally, it's not a burden, but I definitely know other journalists of color don't want to be the person everyone goes to to write the race story or puts on that beat. They want to be a national security reporter. Um, and that can be a problem, too. So I think none of this is ever easy. There's always kind of a push and pull. Um, but I even think, you know, you look at like someone like Condoleezza Rice with her background. She is a black a southern woman who grew up under Jim Crow, but her, like, you know, she, like, is an expert in Russian, and, like, we should be able to be just as holistic as everyone else and have just as, like, divergent interests as, as anyone else. We're just often not kind of allowed to blossom in that way. So I think, and I know what ta is the same thing. He's a friend of mine. Like, he would not, no one's making him do that. He wouldn't want to do anything else, and I wouldn't want to do anything else. Um, but I, I would imagine the national security reporter who grew up like I grew up would probably tell somewhat different stories about national, national security. Maybe might be more skeptical of the government in, in some of these cases. So all of that diversity, no matter what the beat, I think is very important. Yeah, my question is somewhat related to that, in that you said that belonging to a group does not necessarily make a person an expert of course. in race. Mm -hmm. What are the elements <coughs> that um, the an editor or a reporter ought to have that would be tantamount to that expertise. And also related to that, that I would like you to respond to this. Professor Patterson mentioned that there's been a flatness in the, in the level of employment of uh, minority reporters for the, since the eight, 90s, 80s or 90s. Um, I'd like to go back to the 60s to the current commission report, mm -hmm. which was the uh, United States report on the causes of civil disturbances in the cities, which had a chapter, chapter five, on the role of the media and racism, and if you would respond to that, because prior to then, they, apparently there were no qualified uh, blacks, uh, Negroes, as they call it, in any of the media. Right, okay, so actually, I'll, I'll take the second half of that first. If you go back to that report, the numbers, got a little better after that, but the numbers have actually been stagnant for almost 30 years now. Um, 
the the proportions of who's who has changed. It used to be only black, and now it's black, Latino, and Asian. Um, but but the percentage of non-white has has not changed. Um, it was it was interesting. So I I was a history major in undergrad, history and black studies major, and all of my reporting I read lots of books, I read lots of history because I just don't feel like when you're talking about race and why things are like they are that you can understand anything if we don't understand the history that got us there. Um, and so I've read, I've actually read the uh, Kerner Commission report several times. And after Ferguson, um, I went back and read the part of media again because a lot of black journalists were very upset with the coverage. They thought the coverage was uh, falling into the same patterns that the Kerner Commission uh, called out, which is this really kind of hyperbolic reporting that was focusing on a lot of rumors about people are shooting. I mean, we saw it in Katrina, too. You know, people are shooting at police. Um, focusing on like the one building that's burning as opposed to all of the other buildings that, that were not. Um, and kind of the, the disproportionate use of force that police were using against citizens, but, but not really telling that story. I remember uh, some of the reporting out of Baltimore was saying how many um, officers had been hurt by citizens and never gave account of how many citizens had been hurt by officers, which that's to me is just basic reporting. So I think what we've seen is newsrooms are a reflection of society. And even though people in newsrooms uh, think of themselves as very progressive, they are a reflection of society. And we come out of society. So therefore, we have all of the same biases, all of the same blind spots that the larger society has. We just think we don't, which in some ways is, is perhaps more dangerous. So I think it's in many ways, but much of the Kerner Commission is still relevant not just the part on media and what it was saying was one your media needs to reflect your communities um, because then you get this type of reporting that just falls into and solidifies racial stereotypes and what's the first part of your question <laughs> was the elements of expertise that an editor or reporter ought to have to cover the race issue so i think that I mean, I, I'm biased. Again, I was a history major. I think you do have to have an understanding of history. Um, but bas basic things, when I give talks on investigating racial injustice, I, I ask people, do you even know the civil rights laws? Do you know what the law requires? Because civil rights law is actually pretty good if it's enforced. A lot of people are writing about school segregation or housing segregation. They don't even know, they don't know the laws. Uh, they don't know which agencies are tasked with enforcing the laws. Um, those are pretty basic things. I wouldn't write about um, education and not know no child left behind. That, that would be a requirement for my job. But I think we think race is just writing about people of color. Um, I don't think that that is enough. I think that it, it needs the same level of inquiry um, that, that anything else has. But I just don't think people often see it that way. And, you know, it's, it's your sourcing. If the great... So before Baltimore happened, the Baltimore Sun did this great investigation on police brutality in Baltimore. And they had spent months looking at the millions of dollars of payouts that Baltimore PD had had to pay to citizens for, I mean, just doing egregious things to them, almost all of them black. That is the context that helps you understand why Baltimore blows up when Freddie Gray gets killed. But um, most places would not have that context. And most places would only start looking at that story after the riots and not before. That's the kind of reporting that is necessary. Deep on the ground sourcing, I think you find, um, you can just look in how media covers communities of color. They're not spending a lot of time in those communities. They don't have good sourcing. When something happens, they're trying to find a source. We don't cover courts that way. If I'm a court reporter, I'm taking sources out for lunch. I'm deeply sourced in these communities because I know that I'm going to need them for stories. I think we tend to ignore people of color, uh, communities of color, until a story happens. And then we try to get in, and we can't really get in. And so we get the very superficial stories. But also yeah. read a lot of history. I would say read a lot of history. <laughs> Please. Hi, um, my name is Lauren. I'm a PhD student in American Studies um, here. And I just, as a follow-up, I was wondering if you have any recommendations of historical books that you've read in like the past couple of years that have informed um, and influenced like, your own thinking on race in the United States. Um, email me after. Okay. I a ton. Like okay. I probably read. That's all I read. Um, 
I would say that the the most recent book I read that was really fascinating was Ed Baptist's book on uh, slavery and capitalism, which was uh, even for people who think they know the the case that he makes was was really compelling. Um, Right now I'm reading a bunch on the history of school segregation in, in New York City because there's a, a battle there to integrate a school in, of course, what is considered one of the most progressive cities um, in the country, but they still don't want to integrate schools, so that's what I'm reading right now. But if you email me, I can send you a list. I won't recommend ta book because everyone already knows about, <laughs> <laughs> about that book, but he did just have a great piece in the Atlantic on the black family and mass incarceration that I would recommend too. like the history, probably like the segregation now piece I did on school resegregation, two thirds of that story was history. Um, my housing segregation work, half of those stories are history. And I do that because we just have this, one, I think Americans are ahistorical in general. Americans don't spend a lot of time, I mean, they have all, over and over they ask basic questions about American history and Americans can't answer them. So like with race, like multiply that times 100. So um, we think we know, and because we think we know, you know, oh, civil rights movement, they pass laws, you guys all have rights, everything is okay. Um, so I think that's why I always build so much history into my pieces. But I also do, I think about like what, what do I know that the readers are going to object to or not believe, and I write to that. Like what, what are they gonna say, what data what characters, what um, you know, sociological studies, what history can I put in here to answer the questions that I know are going to come up? Knowing that I'm still, I mean, I'm still not going to reach a lot of people because, frankly, I, my pieces are really long and I know people are not going to necessarily get through all of them. Uh, but sometimes even people will read like something that's in two, the first two paragraphs and not get it. And they'll be like, well, why didn't you say this? And I'm like, it's actually right there. Um, so just understanding that race is very, very hard for Americans. And um, I think that it is where we, we want to believe that we are fundamentally a fair society and that everyone who works hard can get the same things and that I got everything that I deserved. And my work is largely saying that is not true. And that is very hard for people to swallow, particularly people. Um, when I write about the South, many of the readers, because many of my readers are not in the South, are very fine with those stories because they can look down at redneck white people who don't get it. Um, then when I point out that the segregation is actually far worse in the Northeast and the Midwest, and that actually New York City is one of the most segregated in terms of housing in schools, then the whole conversation changes. So I think um, we, we have a very hard time dealing with that. And I don't know that. So the This American Life piece that I did, um, I've never received the amount of feedback from readers as I've gotten on that piece. I still get emails every day about that piece. And I'm not sure what struck people. I mean, St. Louis is like both northern and southern. It's not really either place. Um, I think there's something, the reason I pitched it for radio is there's something about hearing that community meeting. For those of you who haven't heard it, there's a, there's a community meeting um, in this white community that is going to be forced to take in a bunch of uh, black students from a district that the state is deemed as unaccredited. And I could write what they said, but to actually hear that meeting, I think, is very powerful. And what I heard over and over from people is, I just didn't know. Which for me, I'm like, how don't you know? Like, you see these statistics, people have been writing about this for years. Um, but you realize, like, this is just not the reality for many, many Americans in positions of power. 
they never have to know what it's actually like in these schools. And that's why segregation, I think, is so deadly, is it hides away all this ugliness and all of this pain from the people who have the ability to do something about it because they never have to actually see it. And so they don't really have to believe that it's that bad. Um, I think one of the things that struck me in Between Me and the World was in the very beginning when uh, he says, uh, people who think they're white. <laughs> and I think that um, we've reduced, first of all, also he says there is no such thing as race. It's mm -hmm. a social construct which we have used to segregate people. Right. Um, and I think it would be very interesting for white people to take that sentence, people who think they're white, and examine it. And I don't know so much going on in the media that picks up on that because, as you were saying, what happens is it becomes a black-white thing, which has nothing to do with race. Ethnicity is completely forgotten. Somebody from the Caribbean would have a very different experience from yours ethnically, right. um, even though many similarities once, <coughs> once you experience the United States, but there still would be differences. And people have forgotten that they're white. They've forgotten their ethnicities. They don't, they want to say, we made it, so can you. But they don't want to look historically and say, oh, let's see, in the 18, late 1840s and 50s, when you look at the cartoons of the Irish and free black people in New York City, you have people that look exactly the same. And so because the Irish, I mean, there's a whole dissertation done mm -hmm. called how the Irish became white. Um, but that's just one ethnic group. And each ethnic group here has had a different experience. A black person in the South is going to have a different experience than somebody in the North, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, I think our media tends to, and I don't know what else it can do, but I think that historical perspective that you think is so important is tremendously important. And I wish that people would focus on not just the rest of the book, but also that, and I think white people need to start talking about that and saying, wait a minute, what do you mean I'm not white? What does that mean? So, just Right. I mean, it's just briefly on that, what I, I, I get in Twitter debates, which I always tell myself not to do, but I end up doing <laughs> anyway, about this, because on the one hand, white is not real, and race is not real. On the other hand, it, it is it real. Is real. It's absolutely, no, absolutely real. Um, and when you look at, I mean, I've read the book, How the Irish Became White, and of course, a uh, bunch of other groups, I mean, anyone who was Eastern European, Catholics, have all been like uh, brought into this <coughs> expanding category of whiteness. But what has been static in this country is blackness. Yeah. And that is what, and, he, and that's what ta talks about too. And so that's why when we're talking about this white-black binary, white can be expansive, and it has been expansive, and I'm very interested in what will happen with Latinos, um, at least Latinos who do not look black, who phenotypically do not look black, because black has been static. Black has not changed. White can expand as need be. And when you look at the demographics of our country, it is going to expand again. But, but black never does. And so everyone else is falling somewhere in. And you know if you want to rise in this country, you, you cannot align with this side. You need to be more aligned over there. Um, and that's why you find with many black people who come from the Caribbean or who come from the continent. Um, they don't want to be aligned with this either, though racially they would be uh, listed in the same category. Down the back, please. My question for you is kind of about if at all throughout your career you struggled with the relationship between kind of success and having a platform to speak and like disruption in kind of white institutions. I'm a, a, a three out of the law school. And kind of to your point about, you know, when you're talking about the South, people are okay. When you talk about the Northeast, they're not so okay. I feel like at the law school and in a lot of institutions, it's the same when you talk about kind of larger forces of racism in the world. People read people like you and Tanezi Coates and are completely on board. Mm -hmm. But when you apply that to like their homes and their schools, um, you're often silenced. And the only way, like you said, to make that pain and truth known is to be disruptive. Um, but that also sometimes then kind of narrows the amount of possibilities that you have to have like a larger platform to say what you believe is the truth. So I was wondering like if, if that's something you've struggled with in your career and how you manage that. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know a, um, a black or brown writer who has 
been serious about this work who has not suffered for it in their newsrooms. Um, I, I think that um, a lot of it is about landing in the right place with the right editor who will actually allow you to do it. But I think that, I mean, and, and I should expand that, a black or brown person in almost any, you know, facet of, of professional life who does not struggle with um, if you are too ethnic or your politics are too ethnic or you're wanting to write about or practice law or medicine or whatever, that that then becomes almost that it can it can derail your career can make it more difficult I think that absolutely um, when I uh, was named journalist of the year this year I gave uh, my speech and my speech I talked about four years ago I nearly left journalism uh, I was literally looking at communications jobs and I couldn't get myself to pull the trigger because being a journalist is like what gives me oxygen but it had gotten to the point where I just I couldn't do the work that I got into this to do, so I didn't understand why I should stay in. And luckily, I got hired at ProPublica, and I was allowed to do the work that I do, which is the only reason anybody here even knows who I am. Um, so, um, yeah, I think it will always be a challenge, and I can say some people were able to finally push through the door, and a lot of people aren't. And those who are able to push through the door, it's not because they're any more resilient or better, just certain things lined up the right way and those who weren't end up doing something else or not being as vocal I think is what you find a lot is people stop challenging so much they adapt and I think this happens with people of color I think it happens with women so yeah please <clears throat> I don't know that I'll always be working for mainstream media, but that's off the record. No plan. <laughs> um, <laughs> just kidding. I, stuck, I know there's no stuck, such a thing. Um, I mean, I think I think that's always the struggle. I I like to. There's one of my favorite books is called The Race Beat, and it's a book about the uh, journalists during the civil rights movement and how all of the work, basically how so much of the civil rights movement would not have had success if it weren't for journalists writing in mainstream media who are exposing what was happening, not just to the country, but internationally. And, and it became an embarrassment and our country had to do something about it. So I understand, um, I respect people who work in these communities because that is, we definitely, all of those communities need people who are doing that work. But I think we also need people who are doing all kinds of different work. And my, my role, again, is to expose these things to people who can and should be doing something about that. And if I weren't writing for the publications that I'm writing for, then people would be able to continue to ignore them. It doesn't mean that there are not people working in those communities and who should be working in those communities to try to make those schools better. Because like I said to this young man here, I don't expect, you know, there's not going to be wide-scale integration in this country. And so there are always going to be segregated black and brown schools, and people should absolutely be working to try to make those schools better. Um, but I have a different role, and my role, again, is not to let us ignore this, not to let us forget about it. Um, but if that's not what you feel your role is, then it shouldn't be your role. But I think you have, you've always had, you know, you had people who were working in the movement and you had people who were covering the movement. And they worked, one had to do that and, and someone had to do that. If you read the race book, that they talk about how Dr. King would plan these, um, these protests and the media didn't cover it, they didn't happen. So they got very, very smart about making sure, I mean, the movement almost died in Georgia because they, they ran into a, a police officer, 
or the sheriff refused to arrest them or brutalize them. And they understood that it was it was those images of brutality that would not allow the country to keep ignoring what had been happening down there. Otherwise, it's just like I talked about segregation. When black folks had been being lynched, they'd been being brutalized by the police down there, disappeared. But we didn't care as a country until it started being exposed on a national, international scale and it became an embarrassment. So that's my answer. But you have to do whatever it is that, that you can live with and that fulfills you and that keeps you whole. Yeah. <clears throat> Please. up on your question, I'm curious about the role of emotion in your work and how uh, that is, and how that's an asset or uh, how it can sometimes be an obstacle to communicating what you want. So, um, I don't believe, one, I, I don't subscribe to the view that reporters are unbiased. We all are. Um, everything from what we decide to cover who we choose to interview, where it goes in the paper. Um, I, I'm a newspaper person, so I always speak, not just the paper, but you know, if it goes at the top of a news program or, or at the end, if it gets two minutes or if it gets 30 seconds. So one, I, I, I just, I don't subscribe to, I don't think it's true. We're all biased, we're all making selections based on that. Uh, with that said, knowing what, that bi what those biases are, are very important because you need to make sure that your reporting is fair, that it's accurate and that it's right. Um, but in terms of emotion, I don't, I, I feel like if I'm writing about these things without a sense of outrage, I'm not really doing justice to what it is that I'm writing about. There are certain things like a budget that one should maybe not feel outrage about. I think that one should feel outrage about children who have been constitutionally promised something that they are not getting and who are being put um, in inferior schools because of their race and class. So yes, I think that that, that outrage fuels my reporting and it definitely um, comes across in the writing. But you also have editors who are like, okay, you went a little far <laughs> with that one. You know, this language is a little too sharp. This is where the editor who is not, you know, as deeply immersed in the story will if, it's a, if he or she is a good editor, it's going to smooth that outrage out. But editors want you to have that, that outrage. That's where the power in the storytelling comes from. I mean, if you listen to the This American Life piece and you can't kind of tell that I think it's wrong, um, I don't have a problem with that. I think that reporters who can write about issues like this and pretend that they have no feelings about it and are not infusing that with that outrage, how do, you, um, how do you spark change? How do you get people to, to do something about it without that? But, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a careful line that you have to walk. Because again, like we, I'm not doing advocacy. And um, the reporting has got to be top notch. You cannot, the reporting, if you're gonna particularly write that way, the reporting cannot be in dispute whatsoever. And so my, I do, a ridiculous amount of reporting and I also try to do like a source note of everything so every single fact in the story I can show you where I got it because I think that's also important because of the way that I write the stories. Yeah, please. <laughs> um, hi, my name is Ben. I'm at the Graduate School of Education and I'm wondering in your point of view which forms of journalism do you see as most effective? I know you mentioned you know hearing the, the parents at that meeting and a podcast makes a difference that maybe you don't get out of book. So I guess how is that guiding your choices in, in how to do journalism? So I'm a print reporter, so I think print print is the best. No, I think, um, I mean, I, I am a print reporter. I love the word. It's, you know, you can carry it with you. You can take your time with it. One of the things I learned um, when I did the This American Life piece, I'd never done a radio script before, but you have to, like, Everything has to be very basic. The sentences have to be very short. You have to repeat things because if you read a sentence and you don't get it, you just go back and reread it. But on radio, you hear it and it's gone. So it's just a, it's a completely different form of writing. Um, but to me, I mean, I still buy. I don't buy ebooks. I print stories out online. I have like overflowing room full of books because there's just something to me about the word reading something on a written word. Like it's it's real. Um, it can't disappear, and um, that storytelling in some ways 
sticks in your mind more because there's not other distractions like television. You, it's visual, you, it's sound, but word is just like, it's just those words in your mind. But with that said, it, it really, it depends on the story. Like sometimes you'll see a photograph and one still photo will impact you and stay in your mind in a way that a 5,000 word story never will. Or with the This American Life piece, I did a print version of that story three months, three or four months maybe even more than that, before that story ran, and it did not get the reaction that the, um, the radio piece did. So it depends on a, the story, I guess. But for me, my love is, my love is print. Hi. I'm your admirer. I'm Jordy, I'm at the Guys for Education as well. Um, do you have any expectations for the new Secretary of Education in the I can't really answer that. Could you that. repeat that? Yeah. I'm not sure everybody. <laughs> Could you repeat the question so people in the room? He wants to know if, if if I have any expectations around integration with John King, who was just named the interim uh, Secretary of Education. Um, I won't tell you what I think about it, but I will tell you that people in general have mixed hopes for him. Um, he has he did implement a grant program in New York State for integration and did try to really force it into school districts, um, including New York City. So people see that as a good sign. Um, but he also appears to be deeply invested in charter schools, which we know tend to exacerbate segregation. So I think people are not really sure. Um, my name is Lonnie Guinier, and I'm a professor at the law school. I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> I've read lots of your work. <laughs> I, I was just curious whether you incorporated class into your discussion of race, because at least as a law professor looking at some of the ways in which cases have been um, litigated, there's an a tendency to just talk about race, but um, to what they're really talking about is class, and especially for working class, poor whites. Hmm. It, and the case that um, I think is probably the most, one of the easiest examples is 1957 in um, Little Rock, Arkansas, where they were trying to desegregate the schools. And it turns out that what was really happening at Central High School in um, Little Rock was that the upper middle class whites right. were taking their kids out of that school. They built themselves a new school, and so what was left in Little Rock were working class white people, and then the, the um, eight or nine black kids were being admitted. Yeah. So, and I mean that's what happened in Boston. I mean, and if you look at desegregation across the country, that that was always a complaint was that it was the burden was on black students and poor white students. Um, so I, I do look at class, but I, I, I think race is an independent factor from class because um, looking at census data and, and even looking at government programs that have led to racial segre segregation, a lot of the, the programs, for instance, from FHA were available to poor white and they weren't available to anybody who was black no matter what their race. When you look at census data now, um, Poor white kids are typically not living in concentrated poverty, and they're not tending to go, unless they live in Appalachia and a few parts in the rural south, they're not tending to go to um, schools that are entirely white and poor. That is a very distinct experience for black Americans, is to be living in concentrated poverty and attending schools that are both racially and um, economically isolated. Um, and even in terms of the what the census data also shows is that if you're poor and white, you are more likely to live in a middle class neighborhood than if you are middle class and black. So that's also telling me that race is playing its own factor. Um, and so white, poor white Americans, the typical poor white American is able to um, get access to middle class communities and schools where even the typical middle class black American cannot get access to those things. Um, <clears throat> Where I tend to look more at class is the way that integration has actually led 
uh, to a double segregation in black schools that we didn't necessarily see prior to uh, desegregation. Because before, if you were black, no matter what your income was, you went to the same schools. And those schools were economically diverse, though not racially diverse. And now what we have is that middle class black Americans are much more likely to be able to get out of those segregated schools. And what's left behind are kids who are entirely black and entirely poor. That's just proven to be absolutely devastating. Um, and so I hear sometimes when people say, you know, we had great schools in, in segregation and integration ruined those and we should go back. And I'm like, we, we can't go back. Like those schools that you grew up in where Condoleezza Rice was going to the same school as uh, the, yeah, the grandfather in the story that I wrote about Tuscaloosa and the grandfather was like a sharecropper. Um, Condoleezza Rice's dad was a college professor. Those schools don't really exist that much anymore. Condoleezza Rice would now have been at an integrated school and it's just the poor kids left behind. So I think that's where I see race and class play more of a role. I don't know if that answers your question. Well, it, 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 it answers part of my question, but the, the, the key part is the fact that the um, upper middle class whites yes. are the ones who abandoned um, Central High School. Yes. And by doing that, the working class whites lost their opportunity to move up. But instead of identifying that problem as the upper middle class whites right. abandoning them, they, they claim that it's the black people. And a woman did a book about uh, 30 years after Little Rock, where she interviewed the um, white kids who had been at Central High School, they were still angry mm -hmm. at the black kids who had mm -hmm. desegregated their schools. They never said anything about the upper middle class white kids who were upper middle class right. who had abandoned. <clears throat> I mean, that's that's the story. That's the story of our country, though, is is wanting to align with power. And I mean, you look you look back at, at, at any of the the movements, the biracial movements. I'm even thinking of like Wilmington when they had the fusion government between white and like poor, poor white and black. Um, and the woman who was talking about the Irish. I mean, <laughs> the Irish became white largely because they started to align with with black folks. So I think that that desire to align with power and to scapegoat that person. I mean, I, I'm going to totally mangle this Dr. King quote, but he basically was like, um, the poor white man had like um, race and it was like the, the knotted up ball in his empty stomach. You know, that as long as that is that is complete mangling, do not tweet that. <laughs> but he was basically saying that you could take everything from the poor white man, but as long as you give him his whiteness, he will deal with it. As long as he he can be, his kids can have no shoes, he can be in crappy schools, he cannot, uh, you know, rise up in his job, but as long as he is not black, he will deal with it. And I think that has always been uh, the story of our of our country and, and, and in many ways continues to be. So we're almost at the end, Nicole. I, I, um, so as a journalist, um, let me ask you a final question here. Um, in covering race, what's difficult to cover in terms of the black community? Uh, for example, the... Oh, I had this all it's okay. Right. It's okay. <laughs> so, I mean, how hard is it to kind of deal, let's say, with family issues and the effect of family issues on kids and so on. Or are, is that as easy a story to do as these other stories that we've been talking about? Uh, I, don't, I don't know what you're asking. So the question is, so a lot of what you're talking about is sort of how these stories impact on the white community, how they're perceived, mm -hmm. right? And so even though he's discredited in lots of ways, uh, when Bill Cosby started to talk about the black family, mm -hmm. there was a lot of pushback from Jesse Jackson and others about kind of what was going on there. So I'm just wondering as a journalist in terms of thinking about within the black community uh, points where there's a need for change. Are any of those stories difficult for you to tell? So I'd... One, I think, I think that's a question that never gets asked about white communities. Yeah. Um, I think we never tell stories about white families not doing what we think they're supposed to do or with 
the white leader who's talking about, you know, is not afraid to speak the truth about what's wrong with white people. I think we never even ask those mm -hmm. questions. I mean, you think about this latest school shooting in Oregon. This was a mom who had a deeply troubled child who had an arsenal of guns at her house. And we never ask about her as a white parent. We never ask about her as a parent. Um, but when we have um, Hadia Pendleton get shot in Chicago, who has a father and a mother, the speech we, that Obama mm -hmm. gives is a speech about black parenting and the lack of fathers in mm -hmm. homes. Mm -hmm. um, and this is following Newtown. Right. When another, when a single white mom's son went and shot up a school. So, uh, to be honest, I don't waste maybe not even a half a second thinking about that. My, I don't, I don't see my job as uh, feeding more of mainstream media's stories on black pathology yeah. because I would say that most of what we would consider pathology mm -hmm. is stemming from structural inequality, and that's what I. Right oh, but about. I, that's what I was wondering about, whether you see yourself as a counter voice to those arguments. Um, I, I, yeah, I guess I, I guess I don't see myself as a counter voice. I see myself as actually saying this is it's the easy story to write about poor black people in a disparaging way. That's an easy story to do. It's much harder to say, why does the ghetto exist? Why? Why do these? Uh, segregated schools exist and who is responsible and, and who is responsible for undoing them. So that's what mm -hmm. I see as my job. I think there are plenty of folks who are writing about um, whatever whatever they think black families are not doing right or should be doing or the, the black community. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm saying what, what should our country be doing and what, should, what has our country done? Okay. Nicole, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.